the second Sunday of every month, we have our Discover class. That's for folks looking for a church home, and we talk about what we believe, how to get involved. That was last Sunday. After the Discover class last Sunday, Johnny and Gina and their little daughter, Ruby Shar place their membership in the church, so we welcome them. Their parents go to this church, so now it's three generations of that family, so that, that's a good thing. So a few months ago, Clark Ballard, is a member of our congregation, sent me an article he had written about his father, and I asked him if I could share a little snippet of that, and it was, they grew up in a small town in Idaho, and there's an old picture of Clark when he came back from Vietnam, and his wife Sandy, and his parents right there. Uh, he told about growing up in a small town in Idaho, his dad did many things, but he was a postmaster in the town. And so in high school, when Clark was going home, he stopped off at the post office so that he and his dad, Claude, could walk home together. But Claude said, before we go home, I've got to stop off at the grocery store. The grocer, Mr. Jones, he said, undercharged me $10 on our monthly grocery bill. And back in the day, $10 is like 20% of the monthly grocery bill. And so he stopped off. Uh, he had caught the mistake. The grocer had it. And he made it right. And in the article, of course, Clark wrote about what an impression that made upon him of his dad's honesty and his truthfulness. Clark wrote, Dad didn't influence people's lives by preaching to them. And I didn't think he really needed to say that. But, but by living before them as an example that made an impact. And probably a lot of us who got raised in good families could have stories like that about our parents' integrity and their honesty. Our scripture for today as we're talking about integrating love into our families is 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. If you did a word study on that word truth, you would have these kinds of descriptors. The truth there means sincerity of mind and integrity of character or a mode of life in harmony with divine truth, the truth of God's Word. So that's what we want to talk about today, rejoicing in the truth in our families. And I simply want to talk about three ways to do that, three ways to rejoice in the truth. First, we want to rejoice personally. We want to have a personal joy and delight in the truth. And I want to say specifically the truth of God's Word. Psalm 119.47, the psalmist writes, How I delight in your commands. How I love them. And we understand the Bible is the Word of God and it is the Word of truth. So we want to cultivate a personal joy and delight in the Word of God. There's at least 10 statements to this effect in Psalm 119 alone. Psalm 119.48, I honor and love your commands. Verse 97, I love your instructions. Verse 127, I love your commands more than gold. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.10 about those who are lost because they refused to love the truth and be saved. And speaking of not delighting in evil, a love for God's Word helps us to protect us from committing sin. Psalm 119.11, your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's so important because, and I first heard John Maxwell say this, I don't know if it's original with him, but I think it's true. We teach what we know, we reproduce who we are. Jesus had trouble with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. He said to them in Matthew 23, 15, hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to make one convert, but when they've been converted, they become twice the child of hell that you are. I'm sure the Pharisees were not literally teaching people to be little hellions. 
But that was what they were producing because we teach what we know. We reproduce who we are. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 29, the parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. So we must do more than just say to our kids, for instance, well, you really need to study God's Word. You really need to rejoice in the truth. That starts with us, each of us as individuals, fathers, mothers, older children in the family. We each have our own commitment to the truth of God's Word. I was reading this past week about a Bible college professor who was lamenting the freshman class that were coming in each year and their biblical illiteracy. He said some of them had even have quiet time every day for years, but their quiet time consisted of reading one verse in the Bible and asking, what does that mean to me? Now that has its place, but what he was advocating was what he called long-form engagement of Scripture. Engaging with long passages of Scripture, longer readings of Scripture, which has been the practice of the church from its earliest days in the New Testament church or in the Catholic catechisms and the Protestant catechisms. And in the 19th century, they came out with one-year Bible reading plans. So if you read through it, you read, uh, followed that plan, you'd read through the entire Bible in one year. And the, one of the reasons that is important is because before we say, what does this verse mean to me, we need to know, what does this verse mean, period? And the thing that helps us discern that is to keep the whole thing in context. And the larger story arc, the big story, we do that by reading and engaging long-form Scripture. That's one of the reasons, as you know, we advocate, we encourage the reading of the one-year Bible. Large portions of Scripture each day takes you through the whole Bible in a year. In the Wisdom Pyramid, Brett McCracken wrote about his father, I will always remember my dad's Bible. As a kid, it was a fixture in our house, thick black leather bound with gold leaf edges, stuffed full of church bulletins, Scripture memory cards, and who knows what else. The well-worn pages were adorned with underlined verses, highlighted sections, scribbled in the margins. I saw dad with it almost every day, studying during his quiet time, preparing a Sunday school lesson. The presence of dad's Bible nearly was a Nearby was a comfort. I think it made the Bible more credible to me that for my dad, it wasn't just a prop to bring to church on Sundays. It was his beloved source of guidance every day. Another preacher wrote, his name is Brandon Brickley at Mountain View Church. He wrote, my dad's Bible lived on the back of his toilet. His bathroom, more affectionately known as his office, was the place my brothers and I would come to ask our questions, appeal our cases against each other, or tell them about our latest ideas or exploits. I know that's not normal, but neither was our family. I say whatever works, whatever works. Now, these days of digital Bibles, we have our Bibles on our phones. I listen to an audio Bible. We might not have that big black book that's all marked up to pass along. We simply want to make sure we're communicating to our families how important the Word of God, the Word of truth is to us. This is why dad or this is why mom spends a half hour alone each day engaging with the Word of God. Don't keep that a secret. Share that, how important that is. Okay, so that we're just rejoicing in the truth on a personal level. But also, we want to rejoice collectively. Number two, rejoice collectively as a family. Deuteronomy 6, 6. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house. So there are some things we can do collectively as a family that cultivates rejoicing in the truth. 
And I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all plan for all families. I really don't. But there seem to be some time-tested practices that have been true through the generations. And one of them is a, a daily devo of some kind of devotional with the family. And my wife, Tammy, she remembers, and she remembers this from 50 years ago, growing up with her folks, the Pruitts, Mr. and Mrs. Pruitt. Gail Pruitt was a simple farmer. But every day at breakfast, Gail and Bonnie and Tammy would sit there, and Gail would read from Our Daily Bread. Some of you maybe grew up with Our Daily Bread because it's been around for decades. And it's just a little booklet, and one can subscribe to it monthly or quarterly, and it's free or for a donation, and now it's available online as well, and it's still around. But it's, a very, it's, just a, it's that verse of Scripture with a quick story and an application, something that's brief and engaging. Now, while on a personal level, we talked about long-form engagement with the Scripture, on a family Devo level, we may, we may want to lean more toward brevity, especially if there's different ages of children and you smell the food and people want to get to that. So the verse and the little story and the application may be just right. And then I want this to be a practical equipping kind of sermon. So this, Our Daily Bread, is still available. That's a resource or a tool. There are many others out there as well. But just the daily devotion communicated, for instance, to Tammy, after all those years, she still remembers the idea that God and the truth and the Word are central in this family. This family is built on the truth. And then another thing is that a family can do is go to church together, is go to church together. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here, so kudos to you. But going to church together, and there's a lot of competition for the church these days. Uh, I, I call it this, the bed, the beach, and the ball games. That's our competition. You can sleep in. You got the beach right down there where you could be right now. You got the ball. There's always a baseball game, a soccer game, volleyball game, softball game, kickball game. Pickleball, for heaven's sakes. What is it about pickleball? That's exploding right now. But as someone has said, there's a .02 chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There's a 100% chance that your child will stand before Jesus one day, get them to church. And there is no surfing on the lake of fire. Get them to church. Now, that's not to say just because a family goes to church and kids go to church, it's a guarantee they're going to wind up in heaven someday. There's no perfect church. We, we get that. But having said that, a, a personal commitment to God's Word, going to church together as a family, that's one of the, the matrix, it's a part of the matrix of practices and traditions that bind that family together in the Lord and cultivate a rejoicing in the truth. I love to see families sitting together in church. And I know children's programming is important and but I know I grew up as a middle schooler and a high schooler sitting in church, listening to Fred Smith, my preacher at Inglewood Christian Church. I was able to understand the content and apply those lessons. It's one of the reasons I wanted to go into ministry because I loved what he did. He was talking about things that matter to people who care. And Inglewood sent dozens of students to Bible college because of that impact. So I, I think it's great when families come and, and are together in church. Bob Russell gave six reasons to attend church together. Ready? Six reasons. We'll go through these quickly. Number one, it edifies you. 
Now, you may complain about the music not being your favorite, or maybe the sermon is below average, but the Word of God is read, communion is served, Christ is exalted. It's just like dinner. Occasionally, you may leave the dinner table disappointed, but somehow your digestive system still assimilates the food nourishing your body. The same is true when you regularly attend worship and are fed the Word of God together in person. Number two. It provides an opportunity to serve others. When you attend church, you learn about the needs of Christian brothers and sisters, are motivated to minister to them and pray for them. It's not all about you. Number three, it quietly testifies to the lost. When your neighbors see you getting in the car, driving out of your driveway on Sunday morning, they know where you are going. When your neighbor drives past the church on his way to the golf course and looks there and he sees a full parking lot, he knows where he should be. Church attendance quietly testifies to the world which side you are on. Number four, it provides a natural evangelistic opportunity. When you attend worship regularly, you have a natural venue to invite people to join you and learn about Christ. Number five, it encourages other believers. A young college student was struggling with doubt. He decided to go to a local church on Sunday morning. Maybe he could regain his lost faith. That morning in an old traditional service, old hymns, long-winded preaching, that morning in an old traditional service, his faith was renewed. He left recommitted to Christ, and he later testified his inspiration did not come from the singing or the preaching. But during the pastoral prayer, he opened his eyes, glanced around, and two rows behind him was a respected science professor that he knew from school with his head bowed in earnest prayer. And the young man thought, if that teacher, with all of his brilliance, can believe, so can I. And and Bob Russell says, maybe the professor left disappointed that day that he didn't get much out of the service, yet the fact that he took the time to meet with other believers was a source of encouragement to the young student, whether the professor realized it or not. Just attending church spurs others on toward love and good deeds. And then six, one final reason we need to attend church regularly is because God commands it, enough said. So what we're talking about, do not delight in evil, but rejoice in the truth. So we want to do that on a personal level, rejoice in the truth. Collectively on a family, do some things which we rejoice in the truth together and cultivate that. The third thing I want to say today is we rejoice in the truth parentally parentally, especially being Father's Day. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. The Hebrew writer says, now you know that all children are disciplined by their fathers. We've all had fathers here on earth who corrected us with discipline, and we respected them. Our fathers on earth disciplined us for a short time in the way that they thought was best. We don't enjoy discipline when we get it. It's painful. But later, after we have learned our lesson from it, we will enjoy the peace that comes from doing what is right, rejoicing in the truth. Probably for most of us. You talk about not delighting in evil, but rejoicing in the truth. The first arena where we learn that, where that's taught to us, is in the family. And it's taught to us by parents who care about us, who care enough to teach the truth, right from wrong, and say, we're going to do right, we're not going to do wrong. And insist on that. We call that discipline in the family. That's that structure in the family. Parents who do that for their children are a blessing to their children. They love their children. That's an act of love. Parents who abdicate that responsibility, that becomes a curse to the children later in life. I mean, think of King David illustrates this pretty well. King David in the Old Testament did a lot of things right. He's a man after God's own heart. He's a great king of Israel. But in the parenting department, 
uh, he had some shortcomings. We get a couple of examples of this in the Bible. 2 Samuel 13, 21. King David heard the news. The news is referring to his son Amnon's sin. He became very angry, but he did not want to say anything to upset Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn son. And Amnon here was not just a one-off. This, this apparently was a pattern with David and his children. 1 Kings 1, 6. King David never corrected his son Adonijah, and he never made him explain his actions. This, this proved disastrous, both for Amnon and Adonijah, these two children, for David personally, for their family as a whole. It was an absolute disaster, David's passivity when it came to his family and discipline. And a couple of takeaways here. Number one is we parents need to be willing to displease our children from time to time. We can't always be the best friend. Sometime, right, we have to come along and be the parent. And the second takeaway is this is the primary responsibility of us fathers, now, I think discipline is a responsibility of both mom and dad, but the Bible is clear that it's primarily the responsibility of the father. The buck stops with dad. Now, if you're a single-parent home and a mom, you're going to have to work extra hard at this, and you can, uh, but in two-parent homes, it's primarily the father. Now, dads, that doesn't mean that we can whip off our belts and go all Indiana Jones on our kids. Yeah. Not at all. The Bible also says, Paul writes to dads, Ephesians 6, 4, do not provoke your children to anger. Want to have that balance, the balance between truth, dad brings the truth, but also grace, grace, grace and truth. It's a balance. Uh, I like to illustrate uh, a children's, children's rebellion, and all children are going to rebel at some point. All children are going to test their parents. Why? Well, you could almost make the case for uh, original sin right here, HT, but I don't chalk it up to original sin. But they're all going to test their parents at some point. I like to use this analogy. So imagine that you're a space traveler. You're out there in space. You've got your spacecraft. You're traveling at the speed of light. But at some point, you crash land on an alien planet. And you quickly realize there's some primordial forest out there. And there's, there's monsters. And you intuit you are the smallest, weakest, most vulnerable thing on that planet. You are at risk, and the only thing that saves your life is you've crash-landed in a giant field that's surrounded by a fence. Now, fence is between you and whatever is out there that wants to get you. So what would you do? From time to time, you're going to go up and push on that fence. You're going to test it. You want to know how strong it is, and hopefully you can't push it over. Because if you're the most weakest, vulnerable thing on the planet and you can push over the fence, then you have no security at all. And so you see the analogy. Likewise, a child is born into this world and quickly realizes that he is the weakest, most vulnerable thing in his world. The, the, the world is full of people that are bigger and stronger and many threats out there. And what stands between a child and whatever threat is out there is the parent. It's mom and dad. And so every once in a while, the child knowing this is going to go up to his fence, his protector, the parents, and push. He's going to push. He's going to test. He's going to test their will. He's going to see whether their will is stronger or his will is stronger. And deep, deep down, he does not want to win that contest. Because if he can win against his parents and he's the weakest thing in his world, then he has lost his security. Do not be a pushover. We need to stand for truth 
and establish discipline in our families. Now, that's one of the things, that's an analogy that I communicate. And this book that I just completed about two weeks ago is called From Love to Like, Raising Likable Children. That, that, this is what it's about. And yes, this is a shameless plug for my new book. But I get to do that. I'm the preacher. But I wrote this for a reason. And because I look around, I see a lot of families struggling in this area, hassling with their children, hassling at dinner time, hassling at bedtime, hassling in the grocery store, hassling at the park, hassling in public. You know, and when, when there's a lack of discipline or structure in a family, there's not a whole lot of room for joy to enjoy one's children. When I say from love to like, I believe most parents love their children, but, but some don't always like their children because of these struggles and these hassles. And, and, and you say, Steve, who in the world are you to write a book like that? Well, I'm nobody. However, 50 years ago, I did take Christian Family Living with my mentor, Dr. Roger Chambers, and learned this basic material. And I wasn't married yet, didn't have children yet, but when I learned this, I said, that's the way I want to do family when I have a family. And it made all of the difference. It's basic principles here, for all intents and purposes, eliminate those hassles. No fits, no tantrums, no yelling no anger, no frustration, either on the child's part or on the parent's part. Once the structure is established that you can go and enjoy your children at any place in public, private, enjoy those children who are supposed to be a blessing from the Lord. Now, I'm, I'm not talking to anybody in particular here. I'm not making contact, eye contact, okay, with anybody. I don't have your children in mind. By the way, I'm talking about prepubescent children. These are children zero up through about 10 or 11 years old. Once they become teenagers, you've got to get somebody else's book. But for the young children, and look, this is a skinny, short book. It's 50 pages. There are books that are better than this, anything written by James Dobson. But it's going to be 200 or 250 pages, and I know people don't read books these days. So this is a book for parents who don't read books because you can knock this out in about an hour, 50 pages. Everybody needs this. People who are Jack's age, who aren't married yet, don't have any children, that's, that's probably the best time to read it. Parents of young children, you know, give this away. I think everybody needs this book. I'm not just saying that. I'm not going to get rich on this book. I wrote it and published it because I think people need this information. It's just a skill set. It's one basic principle and then a few more corollaries. So I'll just put this up front. You can come take a picture of it. It's available on Amazon. Just search on the title and my name and you'll find it pretty quick. Sorry to do a shameless plug, but I, I really, it's this what I have to give and, and I think people will benefit from it. So let me close up with this thought. So when I was in college, I came home on a break and it was in my home church, Inglewood Christian Church, with, with our family. I was sitting with my mom and my sister and my brother, like, I, like we had done literally a thousand times before. Grew up going to church. Mom, my brother, my sister. But something was different on that Sunday because on that Sunday, my dad was sitting with us. And when it came time for the invitation hymn, y'all remember invitation hymns? Some churches call them altar calls. Uh, 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 invitation hymn, guys, if you've never been through that, it's not easy on the introverts. The introverts, you had to get up, come all the way to the front in front of everybody in the church. And my dad was an introvert. 
But at the invitation hymn, he looked at me and he said, you know, it's time. And he walked up and he made his public declaration. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at 50-something years of age, he was baptized into Christ. And he only lived a few years after that. But he stood up and he told the truth about Jesus. It's great when that happens early, but it's never too late to stand up and let the truth count for our families, for the other families and witnesses. Let the truth count for the Lord.